war, natural disasters, diseases. With all that's going on around the world, many people are wondering, is this it? Is this the end? Many Christians certainly are now paying closer attention to the book of Revelation. This book is so familiar and yet so foreign at the same time, isn't it? On the one hand, even those who are not familiar with it recognize some of its elements, like the number 666 or the Four Horsemen or the Antichrist. On the other hand, this book is notorious for being difficult to understand. Do you find this book puzzling? Well, you're not alone. Join me, Wes, and a community of people on Sunday, June 26th at 4 p.m. Pacific for the next round of the AC Literary Expedition, where we will explore this very last book of the Bible. To learn more and to register for this free event, visit us at apologeticscanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E. Again, it's apologeticscanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E. Well, you've heard enough from me, I'm sure, so let's get right to the podcast already. Hey everyone, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. I'm here with Wes. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that's rather controversial, especially given all that's been going on in the United States recently with the the draft, the leaked draft of the Roe v. Wade decision that's coming up. Um, but also, as of the date of this recording, we're hearing that there's been uh, another mass shooting, this time down in Texas, uh, with some 20 people dead, most of them students. So we just want to acknowledge that this has happened and express our condolences to the victims that are suffering, especially the families. Now that I am a parent with kids of my own and things like that, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Wes, um, I hear stuff like this and it just crushes me. And so... For what it's worth, our, our condolences, to, condolences to our friends down south that are going through yet another tragedy like this. Today on the line, we have a very special guest uh, joining us today, Tabitha Ewart. Uh, I hope I said your name correctly. <laughs> um, she is legal counsel for We Need a Law. Now, you might be wondering, what on earth is that? So I'll let Tabitha do all the talking here. Tabitha, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about, again, the leaked draft of the upcoming Roe v. Wade ruling. Rather, it's a, it's a decision on that ruling, and there's been a lot of hubbub here. But before we get into that, We Need a Law. Can you tell us a little bit about what We Need a Law does and your part in all of that? Yeah, we, we might get into more details about Canadian law going forward in this, but but the just the premise of the organization is really that Canada has no abortion law. So in Canada, abortion is legal no matter what gestational age and no matter what reason, including you know sex-selective abortion and, and things like that. And so what we need a law, we want to see that change. We want to see a law brought into Canada that protects pre-born children. And, and the way that we, we go about that is, is we work on where Canadians have a lot of common ground. So things like sex-selective abortion, things like banning late-term abortion, and working sort of incrementally to changing the culture on abortion here in Canada. And we're primarily a grassroots organization. So we work with Canadians, getting them involved in the political process of how laws actually get passed here in Canada. And then we also meet with members of parliament quite regularly and helping them as well, seeing the pro-life movement not as just you know one person in Ottawa, but as a whole across country movement that can all be involved in getting laws passed in Canada that protect preborn children. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think that's, that's really important because I'm always surprised at people I talk to who are completely unaware of the fact that we have no laws on the books in Canada. I think people assume that there's got to be something, <laughs> even if they don't know what they are. And then when they find out that fact and that, you know, they're an organization like We Need a Law exists, they're kind of surprised um, because we assume that there's some sort of regulation, like you said, that's on like sex selective abortion or, you know, f for um, disabilities or something to protect uh, a child at a particular stage of gestational development. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how extreme Canada is on this, uh, and I, I think a lot of Canadians don't realize just just how extreme no law whatsoever actually is. If you look at a lot of Western European countries, the vast majority of them restrict abortion after the first trimester, so that's twelve weeks. There's a few like the Netherlands and the UK where you get into the twenty twenty four weeks. But having no law means it's 40 weeks here in Canada. And there was there was a, um, a well-publicized abortion that happened in Montreal back a little ways that happened at 35 weeks. Um, so this woman had an abortion at 35 weeks. If the child had been born at that gestational age, he likely would have survived. Um, but instead, here in Canada, that abortion happened and there were no legal repercussions whatsoever. Mm hmm. Now, um, I find that a lot of the times when I talk to people, again, they're surprised because they assume, you know, there is something because they, and they'll often talk about how, you know, somebody that they know went to get an abortion, but they were turned away, you know, because of provincial regulations and things like that. Uh, what's your response to that? Is that, is that accurate or is it, is this more a matter of like, business practice? Yeah, there, there's no provincial. The only provincial regulation is, is in Alberta. There's a gestational limit on abortions done in abortion clinics. That's not the same in hospitals, but the abortion clinics. And, and that's across the country that that's the only provincial restriction on abortion. Hospitals will have their own policies. Uh, so some hospitals won't perform them after a certain gestational age. Uh, that, that, that has no legal force. That's just a chosen policy. I'm grateful for those hospitals who, who institute those policies. I did have a friend, though, um, she was about 18 weeks along when she found out that her son had Down syndrome and the doctor who was going to deliver her son really encouraged her to have an abortion and he couldn't change her mind. So he told her right up to nine months he could get that abortion done. He said at his hospital, an abortion that late would go to an ethics review board, but they always decided in favor of abortion when it came to Down syndrome. So that's when you don't have a law, when you don't have, a, you know, a national conversation about the morality and the legality of abortion. Those are the situation. And, and that's the reality is abortion unregulated often is used for very discriminatory purposes like disability or like sex selective abortion. You know, obviously our motivation is human rights for all human beings. We see each and every human being created in the image of God and, and every life that's lost to abortion is a tragedy. You add on some of these discrimination on top of that, it, it just gives an added, you know, fire behind our work in getting laws here in Canada. So then my question is, why is there no abortion law in Canada? What's the history there? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be the short version because I, I could go on for a long time about this. But <laughs> basically what happened, so in 1969, Canada introduces its first abortion law. Previous to that, it was completely illegal. 1969, they said the abortion could happen if it was approved by what they called a therapeutic abortion committee, which was basically a committee of three doctors appointed by a hospital. So that was the law until 1988. And in 1988, an abortionist named Morgan Toller challenged that law all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in that decision, it's there, there's three things that you really should know about that decision. Uh, the first is that they weren't trying to decide the abortion question. They weren't trying to look at the preborn child and women's rights. Really, they, they sidelined the whole morality question completely. They weren't even concerned about what abortions were illegal under the law. What they were concerned about was how abortion was legal. And they found this system was very arbitrary. And, and one of the things is having the unpredictability meant that there were more late-term abortions, which they found were riskier for women's health. So really, they were very focused on that specific way that abortion was legal. And they said that was unconstitutional. They did not, second thing, they did not find a right to abortion for women. They, across the board, all the judges were, were saying that's not something that's here in our constitutional makeup. It's very different than Roe v. Wade, which I know we'll talk about, because Roe v. Wade was very clear. There's a right to abortion, and this is what needs to happen going forward. In Canada, they struck down the one specific law, and then they really said nothing. And they said, Parliament, it's up to you to now come and pass a law. You figure out, you know, what stage of development the preborn child is, you know, in need of protection under law. And Parliament gave one attempt at it in the early 90s, and it didn't end well, and the law didn't pass. And since then, it's just been a political hot potato where Parliament has been Mm-hmm. shy to, to even touching the issue. And so that 1988 Supreme Court decision, which struck down the law, that ended up being the last thing we have really on abortion in this country. Mm. While we're speaking on Roe v. Wade, then we might as well just get right into it. So the the whole reason we're talking about abortion today is actually because of that the draft of the ruling that's upcoming. And it seems that the Supreme Court of the United States is poised to, um, I don't know if strike down is the proper term, but basically get rid of, overturn Roe v. Wade, which was a pretty important landmark decision from 1973, I believe, that basically legalized abortion all through 50 states. And now it looks like it's going to be overturned soon. And somebody somewhere in the Supreme Court system there leaked the document early, the majority opinion that is overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, Tabitha, I have to tell you, I've never seen so much of abortion being discussed in Canadian media um, as we as I've seen in the recent days. So uh, I have a couple of questions for you. One is, why is this such a big deal in the US? And the second question is, why is this such a big deal in Canada? Um, now, I I do understand, and and you were very careful to mention this caveat earlier on, that you're a Canadian lawyer, not not an American lawyer. So with that caveat in place, as a Canadian lawyer, what's your take on all of this? 
Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's been an interesting time for sure. I mean, just a, a bit of the history in the U.S. Right, they had Roe v. Wade, which said that states couldn't restrict abortion until later in the pregnancy. I think after the second trimester, and then along came a while later was Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the other major U.S. Supreme Court decision, which said that states couldn't pass restrictions that caused undue hardship for women. And what you have in the U.S., which I find just very interesting from a pro-life perspective, is a lot of creativity on, okay, we can't ban abortion. Well, what can we do? Um, We can ensure that minors who have abortion, that their parents know about it. We can ensure that abortion clinics have proper medical, you know, access to hospitals in case there's emergencies. You know, we can, we can require informed consent so that women know both the risks of abortion as also often are told fetal development information as well. And you have these states across the country. You also had states like New York um, and California legalizing abortion right up till birth and potentially even after birth. So you kind of have this this, uh, interesting patchwork quilt in the in the US. Um, In Mm. terms of why it's a big issue, I mean, I, I think that's a very deep conversation that would could take a long time. I think one of the reasons why it's such a big issue is because it, it when when you understand that you know the preborn child, that baby in the womb, is a human life with with value and dignity, and, and you understand that the most fundamental human right we have is the right to life. None of our other rights matter unless we have that life in the first place. Uh, I think a lot of people just are, are very motivated on this issue. If you work in the pro life movement, you, you understand how motivated people are to 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 see something done about the tragedy. I mean, here in Canada, there are 100,000 preborn children who lose their lives to abortion every year. Why wouldn't we be trying to do something about that? Now, that being said, abortion is very entrenched in our culture. Uh, Again, I'll just go to the Canadian context. It's been completely legal here since 1988. You know, I don't know when exactly it went up to 100,000, but it's been a couple decades where it's been up there. That means if you're talking to a woman in Canada, you're likely talking to either a woman who's had an abortion or knows someone personally who's had an abortion. And that's true for me. I have a friend who I grew up with in the church who had an abortion. It's it's not a hypothetical, you know, abstract question to Canadians or Americans. It's it's a very real lived experience question for both sides of the issue. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a, I, I don't know the word for it, but the conversation, the way we're seeing it unfold, a passionate conversation may be the word. Um, R.C. Sproul describes it as a very emotional topic. Um, and, and I think that you're seeing that play out, you know, in a political as well as in a personal capacity as the conversations are happening across our country. Mm-hmm. I think that topic seems to be on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And uh, certainly there's a lot of politicization and, and polarization that goes along with it. Um, but I'd love to get your opinion, Tabitha, on the fact that I think, you know, I grew up in, in my mom was very um, involved in various pro-life groups growing up. And so I was always aware of those types of things, whether it was you know, pregnancy care centers or other things like that. Uh, but I think what I've seen, not just in the U.S., but also here in Canada and even to a degree in the U.K., is an influx of pro-life movements, um, which is very positive, but it's also kind of created kind of this back and forth. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that the the pro-life movement has kind of gotten a second wind in the last few decades? And why do you think that might be? 
Yeah, I mean, we need a law was started in 2013, I believe. So, um, it, you know, we're in the, we're in the last decade, uh, as well as I think in Canada, that's that's definitely accurate. I think that there is a new life into the movement in Canada. I I know a lot of people I talk to who are about my age or a bit younger. One of the things that they talk about quite a bit is, is you know, and we even started our conversation here about well, that could have been us. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the fifth of five children. And, um, you know, my mom was not necessarily thinking she was going to get pregnant right away. That, that could have been us. We look around our classrooms and we understand that, you know, it's, it's, uh, one in every four pregnancies in Canada ends in abortion. So potentially we looking around our classrooms and saying, well, we're missing a quarter of the students who should be in my class. Um, we, and again, that personal experience, there's, there's, there's almost no one who this is not a personal topic to them. And I think that is a lot of what's motivating, especially young people into the movement. I, I know the movement in Canada is very driven by young people. Um, there is still very much the, the old guard, if you will, the, those who have been at it for, for decades and we're so grateful for them and the way that they they uh, champion the movement board. And, and now there's a lot of energy and, okay, let's do this. Let's Let's be effective. Let's be faithful in our opportunities that we have and, and see if we can get change here on this topic. Now, I have people in my family that actually work for a pro-life organization that are on the more political side of things. And so, um, you know, meeting with MLAs and but one objection constantly keeps coming up, and that is, does a pro-life law even work? Because the typical sort of pushback from my pro-choice friends is that, okay, let's say, Steve, that you got everything you wanted, you know, abortion is basically abolished and um, you have this law that bans abortion, but then that's only going to drive women to more dangerous circumstances. You know, uh, having a law doesn't actually reduce the rate of it. In fact, legalizing it actually lowers the rate of abortion, those kinds of things. Um, I have my own sort of because this is a personal issue to me, I've I've studied a fair fair bit of it, and I have my own take on it. But I'd love to hear your take on it, especially as somebody who works in in the sort of legal side of things. What are what are your thoughts on it? Do pro life laws actually work in reducing abortion? Yeah, well, well, let's just let's just start one step back from the question, which is why do we pass laws to begin with, right? What, what, especially if you look at our criminal code. Why, why do we, you know, ban robbery, ban assault, ban, you know, causing mischief or whatnot? We, we do it because, and this is baked right into our criminal code here in Canada, there's a sense of morality, there's a sense of justice that we want to uphold as a society. And, and our laws, um, especially our criminal code laws, are, are meant to reflect that sense of justice and morality, right? So, so even if even if a, a ban on robbery was not effective at stopping all robberies, that's not a reason to take it out of our criminal code necessarily, mm-hmm. right? So, so we need to make sure we understand that, that, that yet we can talk about the effectiveness and, and that's a very interesting topic to do that, but, but that's not the sole reason why we pass laws here in this country. Um, but to the effectiveness, I mean, just track what happened in the U.S. after Roe v. Wade and the, their abortion numbers skyrocketed. Same here in Canada. It was it was Morgenthaler that that uh, institute or that initiated a period where our abortion numbers went up quite a bit. 
Now, laws and, and, and you also look at the U.S. states where they have these more restrictive pro-life laws and you do see their abortion numbers being quite low compared to the states with quite permissive laws. It's not going to be a one to one. It's not that simple. Um, culture plays a big part into all of this. I've done a fair amount of research into uh, Europe's abortion numbers. And, and it's interesting, the, the former Soviet bloc countries, abortion numbers are quite a bit higher than Western European countries right? Culture, regardless of the laws, culture plays into this as well as law. It's not the only factor. It is one factor in what we're doing. And, that, and that's the other thing is, you know, if, if for some you know, reason all abortions were banned tomorrow, I wouldn't pack up and go home in this pro-life movement. In fact, especially if it happened that quickly, we would have a lot of work to do um, to ensure the, the safety and the well-being of pregnant women, ensure that there's proper resources in place so that pregnant women, you know, a, a lot of women who have abortions in Canada will tell you they felt like they had no other choice. Okay, what do we need to work with their circumstances in order to make sure that uh-huh. parenting or adoption is a choice that they can they can go for? So it, it, it's never about, oh, let's just pass laws and then let's call it done in the pro-life movement. That's that's really not what defines a pro-life movement. Yeah, it, that that's really well said, Tabitha, because I think a lot of the especially with something like, you know, Roe v. Wade, as we're talking about Roe v. Wade or RV Morgenthaler and all, all of these decisions people can kind of get myopic, I guess, that this is really about laws, but it's it's much broader than that. Um, yeah, it kind of flies in the face of this kind of narrative that you can't legislate morality, doesn't it? Because in one, all laws, in one way or another, they legislate morality. Um, when we legislate against homicide, we're in fact that that is an expression of our morality that homicides are just wrong. That is, that is justice. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> homicide isn't justice, but we need justice you know, to hold those who commit homicide accountable and, and so on and so forth. And so I have very little patience. I have little patience for a lot of things, but I, I this is particularly the case. I do have very little patience for people say, well, you can't legislate, you know, morality. I'm like, but we do that all the time. All laws legislate morality. Well, and I think that plays into your first point, Tabitha, you know, people who argue that, well, if you, if you make it illegal, it's going to force it underground. Well, I mean, we don't use that argument for pretty much anything else. Like you said, stealing or like something like homicide, right, Steve? Like if you, to make the argument, well, you know, we shouldn't legalize homicide because then people, you know, they'll just be murdering each other in the streets rather than murdering each other in back alleys. Like, it, it seems silly when you pull the logic through like that, but that is really the type of argument that, that people are utilizing when we talk about something like abortion, as if that is a logically cohesive form of rhetoric. But really, you know, it's it's kind of s- semantics when we uh, when we compare it to anything else. Yeah. And, and I think also, uh, I think this is because it's something very important about our lack of law and what it's done, because our lack of law hasn't gotten rid of the morality question. Mm-hmm. The, our lack of law, you know, there is still that question of the baby in the womb and what value does that baby have and what human rights they have. Our, you know, our institutions of government saying, you know, it's on the woman to decide that doesn't get rid of the question that just puts the question solely on her shoulders alone. Mm. So now when a woman is is facing an unplanned pregnancy, 
she has to, that there's a, a legal scholar in the U.S. whose name is Erica Bakioki. And she said, now that pregnant woman, she has to become her own embryologist. She has to become her own ethicist. She has to become her own judge about the humanity of the preborn child within her womb. So our lack of law doesn't get rid of the morality question. The morality question is there. It's just now placed it purely on the woman, a woman who is going through, you know, uh, what could be a very stressful time, what is likely to be a very difficult choice. I mean, a lot of women refer to abortion as the hardest choice they've ever had to make. Well, that's because they've had to wrestle with the the emotional side of it, the physical side of it, and the moral side of it, and they've had to do it alone. That's what our lack of law does here in this country. You know, I think perspective does a lot here because when we talk about abortion, it is often kind of talked about as, you know, empowering women, those kinds of things. But the way I think of it, abortion is one of the most anti-woman things that I can think of. Um, Because just what you said just now, that now everything is being put solely on the shoulders of the woman, it almost seems to me like negligence and abandonment by the communities around her. If anything, it empowers men like me to, you know, um, to to put it crassly, you know, have my fun and then just get off scot-free because, you know, who who gets to go through the tr- the psychological and physiological trauma of abortion? It's not me. It is the woman, and it, abortion actually makes it easy for men to not take responsibility for their actions. And so I, I look at that, and, and I can't help but think, man, like abortion is such an anti-woman thing. Yeah, it's it's something, too, that, again, Erica Bakayoki talks about quite a bit, that uh, promoting abortion as empowering to women or, you know, women need abortions for careers or for education or, or anything like that. What it's saying is that a woman needs to be able to mimic a man's biology in order to and 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 sexual mm-hmm. experience in order to achieve equality right that that's basically what it's saying is that in order for a woman to succeed she needs to mimic how a man is involved in reproduction um but the reality is, is that's always going to put a woman at a disadvantage because we can't do that biologically sex is fraught with consequences for us and we can have those consequences in terms of pregnancy and and child rearing or we can have those consequences in terms of abortion either way if you're saying that the ideal is to be able to walk away from sex without consequences women are going to be the ones disadvantaged now when you treat it properly when you treat a woman's ability to, to to gestate and carry a child, when you treat that as, you know, not a disability to be overcome, but a diversity to be treasured, that's when you're actually promoting women's well-being. And you're working with who she actually is and, and what she's actually able to do. You are able to say like, yes, you can be a mother and, and get a degree. You can be a mother and have a career. We can work with who you are. You don't need to end the life of your child in order to do these things. That's a truly female empowerment message. Well, and I think it's interesting. I think you you framed it at the at the beginning, uh, Tabitha, by saying, you know, you believe that all, all individuals, all persons, all human beings are created in the image of God. And uh, that's clearly a true fact. But one of the the ways, especially lately, I've been seeing it framed, especially from uh, some politicians in the United States, is 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 trying to strategically frame it as just a religious issue. And w- what I've always found interesting about that is that this is one of the only issues where it's clearly not 
solely a religious issue. Like you read any of the ethics involved, you read any of the science involved, and it's pretty substantially clear. I mean, I had a friend who did a kind of a survey of all the uh, embryo embryologists, embryology, how do you, however you say it, textbooks. <laughs> and he's like, I can't find one that doesn't say that life begins at fertilization. Like they all say it. And even, you know, Peter Singer, the uh, the famous atheist uh, bioethicist at Princeton, um, he's been very candid saying like, you know, it, it's obviously a human being. It's obviously a person right from the beginning. And I mean, he argues basically for eugenics that, you know, you should be able to abort right up until the age of three because it's not viable, um, which is terrible, but I mean, consistent. But even, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens, um, a number of very prominent atheists have all kind of said, you know, there's really no argument on the ethics here. Why do you think that it's framed? I mean, it's clearly a religious issue as well. There's no getting around that. We, the reality of being created in, in the Imago Dei and the image of God is, sits at the heart of the religious thrust of the argument. But why do you think so many people try to reframe it as that, despite the fact that the science is there, the philosophy is there, the ethics is there? Yeah, they, there was a survey done of um, of embryologists, by the way, and and they found ninety six or ninety seven percent of embryologists agree that human life begins at fertilization, and uh, those are secular and religious. And and so the real question comes down to why why does any human life have value? Why does your life value? Why does my life have value? I, I read a, a post abortive woman story recently, and she talked about how when she was pregnant. She didn't feel like her own life had value. So why would she value the life of her child? She knew full well. I mean, women, women know what they are pregnant with. She knew full well what she was doing, but she didn't see that life as having value. And, and, and as a culture, we, we have all sorts of ways that we devalue each other, including preborn children, you know, and you could talk about, you know, do you only have value if, if you have, you know, rational thought, um, you know, and that's where kind of Peter Singer comes in and that's where he gets to his three years old. Do you have only have value because you're wanted or because the people around you value you? Um, well, what about those who are completely abandoned in this life? Um, you know, there are so many out there who are not experiencing love, um, including preborn children, but including born people, right? Why do we have value? I think as a Christian, and as you kind of are articulated, we will say we, we have value because God says we have value. Um, and then the question I think if we, I would challenge my secular friends is if you are making value on it contingent on any aspect, it's going to apply to born people and pre-born people. The only consistent approach is saying you have value because you are a human being. And that if you are a human being, that is what you are from the moment of fertilization until the day you die. And if your value is contingent on that, it can't change. You can't lose it. You can't. Um, and it must be respected both by our laws as well as by other people. Yeah. You know, I, I find that when I talk to my friends who are pro-choice and are not, they would consider themselves not religious. Although I would argue that everyone is religious in one way or another in the sense that, you know, if we understand religion as a take on reality, well, yeah, an atheist has a take on reality as well. But but you know what I mean, right? They don't necessarily believe in God or anything like that. Um, and so when I talk to friends like that, it I mean, if I start bringing up Imago Dei, they're going to shut me out uh, immediately. It's a I find that it's a way to control the conversation. 
uh, more than anything. And um, so what I often do is I take a different route and I've met plenty of people who, plenty of pro-lifers who use this approach, but they just couch it in terms of human rights. And I can do that with a pretty free conscience as a Christian because the concept of human rights in the Western world, at least, is a, it's, it's very much rooted in Judeo-Christian ethic, especially uh, Christian, I would argue. But at any rate, I find that people, at least still in our culture, have this sense that if you're going to give human rights to anybody, it has to apply to everyone, not just some, right? So one of the questions that I ask is, okay, well, do you believe in human rights? Well, obviously you do. If you believe in women's rights, you believe in human rights as well. Well, what gets human rights? Okay, let's step aside from animal rights for the moment because we can get into that later, but human rights belong to humans, right? And then my third question is, well, what kind of human gets human rights? Do all humans get human rights or do some humans get human rights? And right there, I find that most people would argue that, yeah, all humans get human rights. Then the question is, what is in the mother's womb, right? That's what it boils down to really. But thankfully, I, I find that still in our culture, we have this idea that, yeah, everybody is equal and everybody deserves human rights. It's just that a lot of people come down to this conclusion that whatever's in the mother's womb is not a human being, or if it's a human being, it doesn't have certain qualities that makes him or her a human person, you know, those kinds of things. So I I don't know, I, I've found the language of human rights very helpful. Um, what has been your experience there? Yeah, we, we largely rely on human rights language as well. We don't use overtly uh, religious language um, when we are talking about abortion, um, just because I, I think it's just, it's drawing on that common, um, our, our common understanding that is consistent with, with my faith, but, but is also consistent with a secular understanding. And, and I think it's really useful to, to use terms that people understand. Um, obviously, if you throw out a term like Omagaday, um, not everyone is going to understand what you're talking about. But when you throw out a term human rights, the vast majority of Canadians, yeah, no. And then, yeah, the, the basic human rights argument, right? Yeah. Do you believe in human rights? Who gets human rights? Well, what is the baby in the womb? I, I think that is a, always a challenging. And then it also gets to the heart. When you ask questions like that, people's responses will often get to the heart of why they believe what they believe on abortion. If, if they bring up difficult circumstances of a, of a mother or if they bring up, you know, whether human rights are contingent on, like I said, on on rationality or on wantedness, like that often will reveal the heart of where the disagreement is. And then you can talk about that rather than any of the distractions. Yeah. Now, speaking of difficult circumstances for the mother, uh, Andy actually forwarded to us an article from Wired.com talking about a mother in Texas who was pregnant with a 19-week-old child in her womb. And it sounded like miscarriage was inevitable and there was a, um, a very high probability of sepsis and those uh, other health complications. So she went to get an abortion done for those reasons. And the doctors said, no, we can't do this because of the, the law in Texas. And so the story goes in the article that she had to fly to Colorado to, to seek health care, as they put it, right? So... What about those kinds of circumstances? Uh, are we, you know, putting women in danger by seeking to, you know, 
say, overturn Roe v. Wade in the United States or create a law in Canada or whatever it might be? What's your response to that? I, I think there's a lot of different different facets to this conversation. So I don't know if we'll be able to cover all of them. I, I think right off the bat, I, I would say that we're, we're allowed to you know, have opinions on two different topics at the same time. Um, we can talk about what abortion restrictions should look like. And then we can also talk about what healthcare for pregnant women should look like as well. Um, and I, I, th- I, I think that oftentimes those get conflated as if your abortion law is going to be able to fix all of the healthcare situations. I mean, going here to mm-hmm. Canada where we have, you know, no abortion law whatsoever, we have our own issues with healthcare there. You know, I, I know a young man in Alberta who has uh, trisomy 18 when he was born, he was told his, his, uh, he would be incompatible with life and his parents had to fight tooth and nail to get him health care. And he's now 18 or 18, 19 um, and, and still living, uh, you know, a, a life here in Canada. So health care is, is a concern and, and how we're applying it and the ethics of it. That's going to be a concern regardless of what the abortion law is. Uh, I think kind of going, though, to the meat of it a bit more, I would ask the person bringing this up. If we found a perfect law that's, you know, allowed everything to deal with miscarriage, you know, would they still support that law? Is there actual concern, the miscarriages, or are they using this as a, you know, as a Mm -hmm. reason to oppose the law whatsoever? Um, Because we can talk about the two things. I think it's very important to talk about miscarriage and how we're approaching it. But I want to make sure that, you know, even if, you know, if we were able, would they still support the law or do they just have a problem with the law itself? And let's get to the heart of that if that's the real issue. Mm. I, I was thinking, I think I sent you, Steve, a, a video recently of someone who was being questioned in regards to an abortion law. And they mm. they were questioning this woman and saying, you know, are you advocating for uh, abortion under any circumstance, including rape and incest? And the lady kind of, you know, walked up to the mic and said, would you vote for the bill if we included an exception for rape and incest? And the guy kind of, you know, backed off and said, I, I've, I've no further, no further statement, no further question. And I think, I think it's a good point to say, you know, there are outliers that should be taken into consideration in these, these sorts of circumstances, which probably do merit a lot more kind of careful consideration, but, but using these kinds of exceptions to justify the norm, while that's never a good mode of reasoning using the outlier to justify the the normal kind of rule is always going to lead you into a place that doesn't make any sense most of the time at best and is probably you trying to just justify something um that's not actually your your form of argumentation yeah and and i do find that it's i mean to put it a little bit strongly i i find it unconscionable that you're using these difficult circumstances for, you know, and, and th- these kinds of circumstances for some, some people, right. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of lifelong trauma, like rape and incest and all those kinds of things. And you're using this to justify what you want. Like it, it, it just, I don't know. My, my moral sensibilities are seriously violated when I hear people using those difficult life circumstances to to justify what they want. Um, I, I want to take this in a slightly different direction because, I mean, 
Well, maybe not in a different direction because we're already kind of on that track where we're talking about some of the addressing some of the concerns from our pro-choice friends and whatnot. Um, there are obviously some pretty popular arguments, the common arguments that our pro-choice friends will bring up, and I'm sure you come across a lot of them working in the line of work that you do. Just wanted to do a quick, I don't know if you want to call it a lightning round, but uh, just address a few of them quickly in succession. Um, the first one is, you know, the the granddaddy of all slogans in the pro-choice community, which is my body, my choice. What would be a response to that? I mean, we're doing lightning round. It's uh, not your boy, not your body, not your choice. Um, it, it, you have, you know, we're, we're all pro-choice, right? Like, you know, I, I went to law school. That was a choice I made. I moved across the country. That was a choice I made. I, you know, we're, we're pro-choice, but we all know that our choices, when they impact others, uh, especially when they harm others, that our choices are limited. I don't have the freedom to choose to, you know, swing my arm and whack you in the face. I, I, that's not a freedom I have. So the simple, you know, it's just pulling it back to if there is a human being in the womb, if that's a, a preborn child that has equal value to to uh, to uh, you and I, then you can't choose to end another human being's life. Nobody has the freedom to choose to end another person's life. Okay. Um, thank you. Another one, uh, I hear this is especially in sort of our line of work, because we do a lot of like philosophical stuff. This argument is often brought up, the violinist argument. Um, and for our listeners who are not very familiar with this, this argument, it's a thought experiment. Basically, this woman gets kidnapped and she wakes up um, in a hospital and she realizes that she is hooked up through a dialysis machine to this uh, stranger that she's never seen before. The doctor comes in and explains to her that, you know, the the society of music lovers had kidnapped her last night and forced the doctors to hook her up to this world-famous violinist. And without this dialysis, like, he will die. And she happens to be the only one who has the right body type and everything. She's the only one who can keep him alive. So, oh, but don't worry, it's only going to be for nine months, right? Um, and then after that, you're you're free to go kind of a thing. And th this thought experiment is is often brought up to say, well, does she, it, would, would she be in the wrong to unplug herself from the, the, the dialysis machine, uh, leaving the stranger to die, the violinist to die? And uh, our moral sensibility says, no, well... Yeah, I guess it wouldn't be necessarily wrong for her to do this because she she was just forced into this, right? So this is the the famous um, thought experiment, the violinist argument. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, two two things. The first, if, if um, you know, for for any of the listeners who who are honestly wrestling with these philosophical, whether it's something like the violinist, whether it's the acorn in the tree arguments. Um, I heavily encourage you to either watch an abortion or at least read about what an abortion procedure actually is. Um, the reality is, is, you know, for, for a, a, a standard surgical abortion, you're talking about a doctor taking forceps, going into the womb, crushing a baby's skull, and then P, uh, taking pieces of a body out one by one and then using a vacuum to, to get the rest of the body parts, right? You're not talking about 
letting something die. You're talking about ripping a baby limb from limb. Um, and I, I know that's graphic. And I think sometimes when we're talking about this, we forget that how graphic abortion is. Watch Unplanned. That's a great way to do it. Um, so we're not talking about, you know, just disconnecting ourselves from someone and, and watching them die. You're talking about intentionally going in to kill them. Um, that's very different. The, the second thing I would also say is, is that where the analogy really falls apart is except for in the very few cases where, where sexual assault is involved, you're not talking about being forced to, you know, be in a situation where pregnancy is resolved. If you're engaging in consensual sex, in consensual sex, pregnancy is a natural result of that. Now you can, you can use birth control. You can, you can do things to try and avoid pregnancy, but pregnancy is a natural result of sex. What you're saying by saying that, you know, you're like the violinist and, and just walking away is that a child in which you knowingly, you knowingly entered into an activity that a human being could result. You're saying that that human being is the one who, who kind of has to lose in this affair in order for you to walk away from that. So the, the analogy really falls apart when you start talking about how you don't get pregnant. You know, we talk about accidental pregnancies. If you engaged in sex, you knew that was a possibility going out of it. Um, thank you. Yeah, I have another one. I'm glad you kind of, you you made a very kind of quick mention. Uh, acorn and the oak tree, that that seems to be a little bit more popular in, in vogue these days. And this analogy is often used to say basically that, you know, the, the pre-born child is really not human at all. Uh, just as an acorn is not an oak tree, you know, the unborn child is not 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 a human being. Um, or, you know, I've seen some snarky memes where, you know, there's a, a picture of a frying pan with some, you know, eggs being fried. And it says, according to the Alabama law, I, I'm eating chicken, you know, those kinds of things. And so what's your response to the acorn and the oak tree? Yeah, there's a great book called Embryo by uh, Robert P. George and, and Chris Tollefson, which I highly recommend if you really want to dig into this. They do a fantastic job. Um, the, the reality is, is it, one of the things they do in, in early chapter is just describe what's happening those first that first week of life. You know, you have a sperm and you have an egg. No one's suggesting those are human beings. But if, if you're at all familiar with embryology and, and what happens when those two uh, fused together. And, and it's undeniable, the more you get into the science, that, that something unique is created, that that it, that it, even at one cell and, and very, very small, and um, it is, has its own DNA, is, is self-directed uh, towards its own growth and maturity. Like uh, a woman's body provides the environment for a preborn child uh, to, to develop and grow, but the mother's body doesn't cause the child to grow. That's happening from internal programming, just like, you know, no one's causing, you know, a, a child to grow in height. That that happens, you know, through through a self-directed process. It's the same thing when it's young. That it's 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 the same organism from those moments of first fertilization all the way, you know, as it's developing the womb to being born. 
So the question is, is when does that organism, again, it always comes back to when does it have value? And the question is, is do you have value based on some level of development or some attribute or some other external force? Or do you have value because of what you are, a human being? Um, because it's the same human being day one as it is at birth, as it is when, it, when it's five years old, et cetera. Great. I have a couple more. One of them is this often gets brought up. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but you know, what about in the cases of rape and incest? Uh, she, she didn't, you know, the woman didn't ask for this to happen, right? Um, or the child or what, whatever the case may be. Um, so what happens there? Shouldn't we allow for exceptions in such, such cases? Doesn't that show us that abortion at least sometimes is morally acceptable? What's your response? Yeah. I mean, you, you obviously have to start with just how tragic those cases are. Um, sexual assault and incest are, you know, some of the more horrific crimes, um, you know, just in terms of their uh, the, the sheer level of intrusiveness and, and just yeah, devastation that those can cause, um, you know, women who are sexual assault survivors have a lot of my admiration of just the courage that it takes to, you know, to live and to keep going. Um, and and I, I would just say like on the legal front, I, I'm not fighting for laws that would not include exceptions for these. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to work with, you know, where we're at as a country and as a pro-life movement for laws that, you know, ban sex selective abortion or ban late term abortions, things that don't really touch on these issues. Um, I think for if, you know, if I had a friend who was in that situation, who was considering abortion, so I'll just put it in that landscape rather than any legal landscape. And I would just really encourage, you know, my friend, um, first, I would make sure she knows that I value her. Um, and then I would just encourage her to see that, you know, as a society, we don't give the death penalty to the rapist. Um why would we do that to the child? And then I think there's a lot of healing that needs to go on after something like that. I, I think one of the really insensitive things about the whole discussion around sexual assault is the idea that if if she aborts the child, that'll that'll almost like get rid of the trauma. And, and that's that's not the case. The trauma is going to be there one way or another. And, and I, there are many stories out there of women who are survivors of sexual assault who have raised their children. There's also stories of those who have given it up for adoption I doubt there's an easy path, and I know there's not an easy path either way. Um, there are options out there and choices. Um, the reality is, is how are we viewing that that life that's now created, even beyond her choice? Um, I would encourage her to value that life as distinct from her own, distinct from her trauma, and then work to find options that you know values both lives in that situation. Yeah, that was a particularly difficult one. Because of all the the emotional trauma that that are involved. Um, now, the last one that I want to run by you is a, again a very common. I find that this thought experiment has been making a comeback in the last few years, and it's the fire at the fertility clinic um, thought experiment. And for those listeners again who may not be familiar with this particular uh, illustration or thought experiment. Uh, it goes kind of like this. Let's say Wes is, for one reason or another, at a fertility clinic, there's a fire. Uh, in one room, there is a, a five-year-old kid who is trapped, but Wes can actually save this kid. Or in another room, there is a box full of fertilized eggs, or these embryos, basically. 
And so there's 500 of them. But Wesk only has enough time to save one or the other. It's either the five-year-old child or it's the 500 embryos uh, in the box. So what does he go for? Now, what this is meant to do is uh, kind of leverage our moral intuition that says, uh, yeah, we would probably want to save the five-year-old child, right? And so then uh, the pro-choicer says, ah, see, you're inconsistent because if you really think that, you know, a human is a human being right from the moment of conception, there are 500 people that need to be rescued there. So th this is supposed to kind of um, put you in a gotcha kind of a situation. What would be your take on that, Tabitha? Yeah, I usually respond right away with my own scenario, which is, uh, let's say you're in a burning house and in one room is some, you know, two strangers uh, and then another room is your mom and you only have time to save one. Which one are you going to save? Because likely you're going to save your mom. That doesn't mean that the two strangers are not human beings of value as well. That that's the, like we make choices for complex reasons in those situations that doesn't mean that, oh, you don't value the other people. You can only save, you know, you can only save one room. So who are you going to save? Um, again, if, if this is compelling to you, I would challenge you to go watch an abortion because this is not leaving people to die. This is intentional ending of life. So very different scenario. Mm. Um, and then, and then also I think, um, yeah, I mean, you could you could talk about all sorts of things. You could talk about the embryo's chances of actually developing um, into mature human beings and and what value of that. It, it's just there. It's just it's it's not a question of actually the value of those lives and whether it'd be okay to intentionally kill those lives. It's you're in an emergency situation. What are you going to do instinctually? That's that's not a good way to build your case for morality. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, I'm glad you brought up that part about abortion being an intentional and direct killing of the preborn child. Because if you really want to make it analogous, and let's say, you know, um, in this scenario, Wes is rescuing 500, you know, embryos. But really, if you want to make it analogous, what he would have to do is go into the other room and actually butcher the five-year-old kid before rescuing the 500. Not that Wes would actually ever do that because he's he's just a really stand-up kind of guy. Thanks. That's, a, a, that's a good man. preface. I'm glad you put that in there. <laughs> Sorry. I, I didn't foresee this when I put you in the thought experiment. My apologies, no, no, Wes. No, <laughs> I, I understand, Steve. I, I think this uh, dictates loud and clear what you think of me. <laughs> oh, he's not going to let me live that down for a while now. Um, but yeah, thank you for for those responses. I think in talking about abortion, it's always helpful to kind of at least quickly address some of these things. So Tabitha, thank you so much for taking your time to join us to talk on this very important issue. Now, if our listeners want to learn more about you and the kind of work that you do with We Need a Law, where would you send them? Yeah, I, I just would want to make it very clear, if you're a Canadian citizen, you are a part of the political pro-life movement. The question is, is whether you're being silent or whether you're using your voice to speak up for justice for pre-born children. And our organization is all about helping you to do that. So go to weneedalaw.ca. We have lots of tools of how to contact your, your MP, your MLA, your MPP, how to speak to the public about the need for abortion laws here in Canada. Sign up for our newsletters, follow us on social media. We try to give action items 
Uh, you know, abortion has been a topic in the conversation in the media and politics recently. There are things that you can be doing to be a part of that. So come and follow us. We need a law.ca. Awesome. Well, this has been a wonderful time of conversation. Uh, again, I can't say enough how thankful I am that you joined us taking some time out of your busy schedule to do that. Thank you so much, Tabitha. Um, Thank you, listeners, for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week, I'm sure, with more stuff to think about. Uh, Until then, you know the drill, as Troy would often say, or always says at the end, love God, love people.